Okay, men. We're going to, um, if you ever played any sports in a swimming pool, you know how much nicer it is to end up on the shallow end? Well, we're going to swim from the deep end over to the shallow end now. So, so uh, Jerry brings the pain, and like uh, Calvin said in one of the cartoons, no, no pain is so great that a little guilt can't add to it. So I hope to add a little guilt to it right now. Uh, let's open in prayer. Father, we uh, thank you that your spirit uh, teaches us spiritual words with its enablement. I pray you do that now. I pray, Father, that uh, we would turn our minds to uh, putting into practice these things. Begin the process of sanctification in our lives. Uh, changing our behaviors, our thinking, our approaches, our attitudes, our hopes. Uh, all of those things, Father. Uh, I pray you be with us, because if you don't do anything, nothing's going to happen. But we thank you that you do stuff, and you always take care of your part. I pray we take care of ours. In Christ's name, amen. Now, I'll tell you that um, I wasn't, I'm not from here. I was just commenting to Steve how different this crowd is from one back home, and uh, a little more well-behaved reserved perhaps, uh, but also uh, uh, different in a lot of other ways. Culturally, I was raised in a very, very Catholic part of the country, one of eight kids. Uh, in my hometown, if somebody had less than five brothers and sisters, you figured their parents didn't get along. Okay, so a lot of big families. Um, uh, it creates a whole different culture. And one of the, the things I will mention that I grew up and I had a fine dad, I would had a very good experience with a father who was a World War II dad. He wasn't touchy-feely, lovey, but he was a, a good man, and he's deeply committed to my mother. But that, um, I can remember, and we had like one or two serious conversations my whole life. We uh, mostly dealt in football and sports. Regardless of that, uh, he taught me that in his, we didn't, by the way, at that time in, in our church, uh, you believed in Jesus, and but you went to religion class, and you heard the priest read a few verses. You weren't supposed to have a Bible in your home. So I didn't had never opened a Bible uh, until after I came to Christ. And not uh, just opened one up to look through it. And uh, he had taught me that a regular guy could not understand the Scriptures. You needed a priest or a professor, somebody who was an expert to do it. It was beyond our capacity. And uh, what struck me when I came, when I first heard the gospel, which was I was 18 years old, and the guy shared it with me, and the verses he read were so plain, and they made so much sense that, they, that I thought they couldn't be in the Bible. And uh, when he asked me what I thought about the gospel message, I told him I thought he was lying. The Bible didn't say any of that stuff. And he said, well, that's a new one on me. So he gave me the verses, and, and I went and actually saw a priest and found that the verses were in the Bible. And um, it struck me, and then I can't remember anything the priest said after that. It was like a train was going through my head. I, a normal, regular layman, could understand the Bible. And the words were plain. And so we're going to... 
my approach here and, and, um, is that the Bible is not written to seminary professors. It's written to schmucks like us. Regular guys. And if we can't understand it, that the Bible is a sick joke. And it's not a sick joke. So, uh, first thing to comment on is to realize that you can open it. And if you work more on what it says than anything else, you'll be just fine. Just take the words at their normal meaning. So let's, uh, let's go in and look and talk about business and business uh, and faith in the marketplace, faith in our jobs, in the workplace. And um, business, by the way, as all of you know, requires faith. And the reason that the Bible does not prohibit gambling is because you can't do anything without walking by faith and gambling. When you, everybody knows if you got married that, you know, a year or so later, you say, what happened? This isn't who I thought she was, right? And she's saying the same thing. And you're gambling that she is what you're hoping for. And that's a whole different topic we're not going to get into today. Um, However, to live life requires faith. And business particularly requires faith because you take uh, resources, relationships, money, and you invest them in some, or your time when you take a job and you're on salary, assuming and betting that the money you get is going to be worth more than you give, right? But you don't know till you get there. So that's faith. That's walking by faith. And um, if you start a business, there's a lot of small business guys you know what that means. You, you go rent someplace, hoping people walk in and you can pay for that place. And you're always, no matter what you do, you're always investing and betting, placing a bet. And uh, as Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It involves the future and the invisible. So you, it's a bet. It's gambling. You, we gamble on God. We push all these chips and there's a level of uncertainty regarding that. And so, uh, business is risk-taking. And uh, we all know what it means. And we're all hoping that through it, we'll come out with enough to pay mortgages, rent, food, education costs, all those kind of things by this, uh, all the things that we put into. And um, so no man lives without faith. And uh, every time you hire an employee... Uh, uh, buy a machine, stock, get a new car, uh, sign a contract, uh, bid on a piece of business, borrow all this stuff, Uh, get on a plane. You're exercising faith. Well, does all of that faith please God? Does the fact that, like, you know, in the movie Annie, it's going to be better tomorrow? I just have faith things are going to get better. Does that please God? And the answer is no. It's not what pleases God. That kind of faith, the kind of faith we normally exercise in business, you can't live without. It doesn't impress him at all. Everybody lives that way. So let's look a little further in Hebrews 11 at verse 6. And it says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is the rewarder of those who seek him. And so that means... It refers to the faith, he says, is for faith in God. 
which means if you have faith in somebody, you believe what they say, right? You trust them. That's what faith is, putting your trust in something. But my faith in this guy, he's going to deliver this message to so-and-so before 5 o'clock this afternoon. God's going to do what he says he's going to do. And um, that is the only kind of faith that pleases God. So you, when you're praying, you think, I just have faith I'll get this thing I'm asking for. And if I have enough faith, I'm going to get it. Well, that's not biblical faith. Unless your prayer is based on something God has said he would do. A promise contained in the Bible. And so there's a difference. And it's dramatically important to understand that. So you just going to work every day, uh, it's not going to please him. You just starting a business is not going to please him. It's believing and trusting in everything he says, and I mean everything. It's not multi- the Bible's not multiple choice. So it's a reliance on God's statement, and you show that reliance in the easiest way by obeying his commands. I mean, who's not going to have sex with anything that's walking and looks good unless God says you can't? Right? That stuff's fun. God says you can't. You believe it must not be good for me. You don't do it. He says, if you, if you obey me, it works out really well for you. So, and God makes a lot of promises. So, faith in the marketplace is, the, is faith that shows itself to the extent that you apply what the Bible says, you, how you ought to behave and think in the workplace. And you do that regardless of the cost. So you bet that you can do things the way God says you should do them and you'll be fine. And um, that will please God. He cares way, way more about why you work and how you work than what your job is. What your job is. We'll explore a little of that. We'll get into that a little bit more. But Romans 4.18 through 21 is a better, is a really cool description. And it's interesting to me, by the way, um, that right after Paul goes through salvation in Christ and what happened to Jesus and how we were, our sins are forgiven and there's all this cool stuff, the first example he holds up to us is a guy that lived 4,000 years ago who was around when Noah was there. Think about that. Think about that. So it says this, starting in verse 18 of Romans 4. In hope against hope he believed, talking about Abraham, in order that he might become the father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. He believed what God told him. Not just that he, he had, they'd have a lot of kids because they're, you know, whatever. So shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, in the deadness of Sarah's womb, in the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, he didn't waver in unbelief. So he was betting everything on things God said, not evidence. You're going to believe your own lying eyes or me, God said. I'll take you, he said. And he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured, not certain, but confident that what he, God, had promised, he was able also to perform. That is an incredibly important statement. And if you're going to obey God in the marketplace, that better be true. That better be true. We'll talk about why. So 
so we believe in God. We act in response to what he has told us and, um, and actively rely on his word and business. Now, you got to ask yourself, if you apply and if you know your Bible very well, everything it says, you're going to be, from my mind's standpoint, at a very significant disadvantage to your competition. Because they're not following those rules. And they won't, you know, I was just in an, um, this week I left an arbitration in Boston. And going for me, going north of the Mason-Dixon is not the easiest thing, okay? Well, those folks are different up there. And I'm up there, and we're dealing with some guys uh, from that area, New York and Boston. And um, they didn't have the same set of standards we did. They had values. I mean, they didn't matter to them about, this was a venture capital guy on a software deal. And in any case, and I realized we're tethered to the truth. I've kept telling them, just tell them the truth, good, bad, or indifferent. They weren't tethered to that. And I'm going, how can I, how can we have any chance to win this? Well, there's only one way, is if God delivers the victory anyway. The game has got to be rigged. And God says, it is. The game is rigged. And we'll talk about that. But you, you've got to ask yourself, like Dirty Harry do, said to that guy, do you, do you feel lucky? Do you feel confident that God will do for you what he promises? Because can you really trust him? Or are you going to get slaughtered and lose everything? And, um, and the same reason you trust him, the same reason you put money in a bank. Maybe there's a reason they don't put banks in trailers, right? Because you want to see a big substantial building so you think they don't need my money to pay the rent. But they need to have, so they have to have capacity. You want a bank to have a lot of money so that when your checking account, you want to write a check, they hadn't used it to pay their employees. Well, that means they need a second thing. They need character. <laughs> so what do they do? They put a board of directors and they advertise them. These are guys are people respect in the community. They develop a reputation for being honest so that you feel assured they have good character. They've got capacity of character. And the next thing is, I can't just go to the bank and throw some cash on the counter and walk out, Right? They have to make a commitment. They say, if you give us money this way and sign these papers, when you want to take it, you come get it. And so they make a commitment. And God has all three of those things. We all trust banks that when that money's in there. Now, I grew up in our part of the world. There were a lot of people uh, uh, that buried their money, put it under, I'm serious, didn't trust the, the banks and, 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 and lost a lot of convenience and also return by not by doing it that way and they also got robbed more often because they're carrying a bunch of cash around so it's not a granted but God has all three so you can trust him and you need to really think about that because you're going to bet some you're going to bet some real time and money on it now um, Pharaoh was really thinking in the Old Testament because who comes up to him guy, 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 Moses guy named Moses who they'd run out of town years before comes back and said let all this labor that's working for you for free, go. And Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should, let, that I should obey him? His vo- uh, that I should obey his voice to let Israel go. Do you not know that the Lord, and uh, do, I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Well, he was thinking, I get a place of, 
I'm not taking that risk. I'm not going to listen to God. So whenever we disobey, we do the same thing. We just say, well, we're, we don't think about it this way. We're calling God a liar. When you disobey him, you don't, you don't believe him. Or you do what he says. You don't believe he's really, I mean, he's the creator of the universe. He tells you to do something, you do it, right? It's not even, it's not even logical to think any other way. So you just don't believe in him. And every form of disobedience comes from a lack of faith. That's why faith and obedience are used as synonyms in the New Testament. And by the way, it's just a caveat. We won't go down this road. But you can't know God unless you know the Old Testament too. He takes 4,000 years and says, watch me in action so you get a favor for what I say and what I do. And, and people ignore it. But you've got to realize we're, we're talking about a God who drowned everybody in the world but one family. Right? He did that. He told his people, go in there and kill the women when they took the promised land, the women, the children, the pet cat, the pet dog, the cattle, kill it all. Right? Now, we have a different, he has a different view. Remember, you can't understand God if you don't understand. He always sees the eternal. We just keep thinking temporally, but he always sees the eternal. It's a long game. Nobody goes to heaven early, so he, but you, you better embrace the God who describes him there, because that's the God you're going to stand in front of when you die. And if you reject that and you don't want to know him, you want to make up a different God. Make up a different God. See how that works out for you. But be honest about it. So, biblical faith always results in changed behavior in every area of your life. At home, in church, hunting, work. I mean, um, when you're alone, it may move at different speeds. You may grow, you know, when you're a kid, you got to learn to tell time and all this other stuff. As you grow spiritually, it's like growing as a kid, but it all changes. You can't, there's no, you can't, if I was standing up here and had one arm the same size as when I was born, it just wouldn't work good, right? So it has to kind of be growing everywhere. And um, so we need to understand a couple of presuppositions. And when you read what things the Bible say, there's a presupposition under it. There's a, and, and some of the ones we need to have as presuppositions if we're going to obey God's commands at work or that first that he'll meet our needs. We're not just hoping he will. Jesus said in Matthew six thirty three, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be provided to you. What are those things? Material needs. He says, if you pursue me, I'll take care of that. Now he's either, that's where you say, you don't need, you can try to interpret that any way you want. He said it in plain English. Well, maybe not English, but in a plain language. So he says, hey, God will do that. He says the Gentiles pursue all that other stuff. But you got me. You don't need to worry about that. Further in Philippians 4.19, And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Here it is again. You better believe that if you're going to meet a commitment when you shouldn't. If you're going to, if you're going to uh, uh, treat people the way you have to treat them, look not after your own interests, Keep your word either when all the things he's going to get into if you get into his word about how you have to behave, pay people fairly, pay them on time. All these things, uh, you better believe that he'll meet your needs. And you don't need any of that stuff to do it. 
Now, um, second, you have to also believe that the results belong to God. In other words, the game is rigged. You would not play poker with God, okay? He, everything's rigged. He knows, he knows everything and he controls everything. And 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, for who regards you as superior and what do you have that you didn't receive? If you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Everything you got is from God. Everything you've ever obtained that you have control of and everything you are, your intellect, everything, came from God. So he's making this. Proverbs 22.2 says, The rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is maker of them all. God determines your lifestyle, not your career, not your paycheck, not your investments. You may do all those things, but remember, the Bible's hard for us to understand because it's telling us it's revelation. It's stuff we can't see. I don't ever experience God walking a check to my house. I do have the experience of having clients walk a check to my office. So I have to take this on faith that he's doing that. And so everything I've ever obtained came from him. And he has a right, by the way, to take it away. But he decides my lifestyle. If he wants you rich, you'll be rich. If he wants you poor, you'll be poor. Try to beat him at it. Can't do it. You can't do it. And so therefore, the, the third point is that we don't work to make a living, but because God commands us to, to work. Before the fall and after the fall, he said we had to work. He just said it got harder, though. We work because he says to. So we work for, and he also, in Colossians, says, whatever you do, do you work heartily as unto the Lord, right? And he's, it's the Lord Christ whom you serve. He's your boss, you're going to let him determine your hours or the marketplace. These things have significant implications. But once you're freed up and you realize I'm working for him, who tells you how to work? Your boss. And you may have a guy standing in front of you, and one of the things is listen to your boss unless he tells you to do something immoral. Right? So listen to him. So we work for God, and we're also stewarding all his resources. You better get those things firmly in your thinking because you go sideways if you don't. Meditate on them. Make them a part of them who you are. And so you have to, and the implications are significant. We're not handicapped when we're honest and our competition isn't. When we refuse to spin to make ourselves sound better than we are and spin to make themselves worse, make them sound worse than they are. We don't have to do that. It's, it's rigged and, he'll, uh, and he will reward you. It may not be apparent. And sometimes the reward only comes in eternity. Because you have, I know guys that worked really hard and never got paid. And where, you know, when they have these downturns, I know guys that went out of business because people didn't pay them. So, but it doesn't change this reality. But you can't walk in faith if you're guessing at the will of God. And if you want to know the will of God, where do you have to go? Everything in here is absolutely true. Everything else you hear is suspect unless it matches this. Everybody else pays cash. You take a check from this. See? There's a difference. You, if you don't get in it, you can't, you can't in any way understand on your own thinking how to please God. And by the way, if you're married to a gal and you're trying to figure out how to live with her and love her, you've got to pay very close attention to her patterns of behavior. He said, don't say that again. I tried that last week. Didn't work out well. Right? 
You've got to study her. Well, you better study. These, this tells you what makes God happy. And God says, when you make me happy, I will make you happy. And you'll get way more than whatever you bet on me. Because I got everything. And you've got, besides, what you give sucks. I'm the only one that gives really good gifts. Your righteousness is like filthy rags. That's the joke. But we still pursue it. And he still rewards us. So, you can't, too many men grab the promise of heaven in Jesus and ignore commands like don't seek wealth, don't love money, meet your commitments, tell the truth. See, I can trust you with my eternal salvation in heaven, but my daily bread, pff, I'm not going to rely on God. That's what, think of the Lord's Prayer. Give us a day our daily bread. Why does he say that? Unless you only comes from God. See, the problem is not we don't hear this stuff. The problem is we don't think it. We don't think about it. We don't make it part of how we view life and the world. When that little old lady pulls in front of you and you just want to take her and whip the car with her because you're in a hurry, that was God that did that to you. Wanted to see if you could be patient. Maybe if you'd leave earlier next time. That circumstances come from him. But what am I up against? Well, faith in the marketplace requires thinking. You've got to actually stop, think about the commands and how they apply at work. And it better be intentional because work moves fast. So it requires a lot of thinking because if you, in my office, things move fast and you end up in the react mode, and so you better think about it because when, you, when we react without thinking, it ain't pretty. In fact, I usually, when we have a problem, I say, I'm just going to give my first response because it's always wrong. I'm like George Costanza. Whatever I think, I better do the opposite. See, so, so we want to search for the relevant Bible passages that tell us how we approach things that would happen at work. And people, that requires effort and time and developing convictions because it moves so fast if you've not reduced it to a conviction and what you're going to do in that situation, you'll probably... Handle it wrong. That, guys, that takes a lot of work. You've got to pre-think it. If, okay, if this happens, I'm not going to do that. I have examples of that, but we're not going to go over them. Well, what's the problem? It's the velocity of life. Good gosh. We are, I mean, you can't, it's hard to get away where you're not getting some kind of sensory input. Um, 30, over 30 million Americans, men, say they're stressed out. 36% are rushed all the time. They're always in a hurry. The average office worker is interrupted 202 times a day. Um, they have 36 hours of work on their desk. They spend three hours a week just looking for the next thing they have to work on. Believe it or not, just finding it where they forget you, where you put it and you need to go get that. So the average American also gets two and a half hours less sleep than we did 100 years ago. In the 1850s and 60s, people, the average American slept nine and a half hours every night. Nine and a half hours every night. By 1910, it was nine hours. 1950, it was eight. 1990, it's seven. And I'll bet you now it's six, six and a half. By the way, read articles on that. That doesn't play out well. That just shows you how many things we're doing. So, only, by the way, only 10% get 30 minutes for lunch. Because if they're not working, they're running an errand or taking care of something else. 
Um, we lead the world in hours work to productivity. The average American works 14 weeks more than the Norwegians. That's a low bar, I'll admit it. But that's, that's a lot. Church, the average church per, person involved in their church, it takes 20 to 30 phone calls to get the same number of volunteers that two or three would get 20 years ago. Because everybody's so busy. There's stuff going on all the time. Uh, eight to ten Christians only pray on the run. And we have to realize there's been more change in the last 140 years than in world history. All, all of it technological. We hadn't gotten any smarter about human nature. Uh, James Thurber said, man is flying too fast for the world, uh, for a world that is round. Soon he'll catch up with himself in a great rear-end collision. That's pretty thoughtful. And that guy lived probably about 100, 100 years ago now, and he saw this. Jesus never ran anywhere in the Bible. And he didn't try to heal everyone either. He healed some people for very specific purposes. To us, the person right in front of us is an obstacle, not an opportunity. Get him out of there. I got stuff I got to go do, right? It's a terrible mindset to have. You got to slow down and think. I like what Malcolm Muggeridge said. 60% of the people never think. 20% don't want to think. 15% think they think. And he said, I made an international reputation thinking once or twice a week. If you're going to walk with Jesus, how many times does the Bible say examine yourself? Consider this. Think. Moses considered the riches of Egypt not worthy of comparison. He did a cost benefit in his head. The guy was thinking. The guy was thinking. Uh, the next problem we have uh, is, um, oh, wait, quick. I love, any, anybody seen Casablanca? None of the young guys did. In it, early in the movie, uh, Peter Lorre asked Humphrey Bogart, Rick, do you despise me? And Humphrey Bogart says, I guess if I thought about you at all, I'd despise you. <laughs> Thinking. You've got to think about something to have any opinion on it at all. Now, my natural inclinations not going to provide me a lot of help. Genesis 6, 5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only to do evil continually. Proverbs fourteen twelve says, There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. These aren't optimistic comments about us just using our brain outside of the truth of the scripture. Judges 21, 25 notes in during the zoo, that is the book of Judges, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And it doesn't play out well. Now, versus what's noted in 1 Kings 15.5 about David. Because David, it says, did, was right, did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Where did he get that? That's where he got it. David do what was right in the sight of the Lord and had, and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him in all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. Except that he killed a guy and committed adultery. He was a pretty good guy. It's interesting. It was where his heart was. Where his heart was. But there's apparent conflict between doing what God wants and doing what comes to your mind 
or what other men might tell you. And people read these business books written by lost people on telling them how to do business. And they read more of them and spend more time on them than they ever do in the Bible. There's a conflict between the two, and you better know this one or you won't pick it up. You won't see it. Your instincts and many business principles and the counsel of ungodly man is not the place to go. There are some business tips you can get, but you better know the Bible because every one of them has errors in it, presuppositions about pursuing wealth and all that kind of stuff. You just don't want to go there. We have to allow the Bible to determine our responsibilities and behaviors at work. No one else. Well, let's talk a minute about success principles because this is something I bought into hook, line, and sinker when I was younger. Uh, our culture says you should pursue success, whether it's in acting, it's in music, that you want to be sell a million records, that you want to make a million bucks, you want to do all these things. Uh, and all of this is defined by either. It defined, you know you're successful either by because of an amount of recognition. In fact, it's new in world history that people are famous just for being famous. Making it, you know, they never did anything to be famous. They're just famous. And with TV, you can be that way. Recognition, money, power, or some kind of academic or, you know, writing, thinking achievement. And that's how they determine success. And they tell you whatever you can conceive, you can achieve. That you're the captain of your destiny. That you can determine how your life's. And on the other side, they'll say nothing you do will help at all. You neither one agree with the Bible. You're a victim and you can't do anything to crawl your way out of it. Both of them are not biblical at all. But I actually believe that success was a formula. That if I had a positive mental attitude, which God does not laud, I want to be positive towards him, but just to be positive thinking and upbeat. So, but if you had that, you work hard, you have good business technique equals success. And that meant money, happiness, promotion, self-esteem, recognition. But if you, and I actually thought, but if you add a little Jesus to it, like I have really good quiet time, I'm going to get the deal today. So Jesus gives you a little edge. It's how a lot of guys think, even Christians. Uh, nothing could be th- further from the, from the truth. You can't serve God and mammon, Jesus says. You can't do it. And, er- and most men I know absolutely certain they can they can take biblical principles and mix them with worldly thinking. And they'll be fine. They can keep it balanced. Read about Solomon. He thought the same thing. And he was a lot smarter than you according to the Bible. And he couldn't pull it off. He couldn't pull it off. So the, um, uh, the pursuit of what the world calls success is going to derail you in your walk with God. You work hard. And if God wants you to get a lot of money, he'll give it to you. You leave it to him. So we don't control, we don't, you let go of the results and just stay focused on the process. I'll worry about our business plans and I'll make sure our business plans have things that we can do without manipulating our clients because I can't control the, the marketplace. And we, we really work to do the right things. And if we do those and we don't get the business, God didn't give us a business. But quit worrying about the outcome. And it's not easy to do and it takes, you're going to have to work at it because I like winning, Right? Who doesn't like to win? Who doesn't like to get a big payday? I mean, I don't have to gin that up. I just feel better if we make a nice profit. You've got to work on that. Because all of the success in the world is measured by comparisons. A good verse to write down is Galatians 6, 4 through 5. But each one must examine his own work, 
And then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone. Am I doing better? And not in regard to another. Each man must carry his own load. You're not anybody else. God has a different plan for your life than anybody else you know. And so you can't look at what his plan for them and, and, and handle it in the right way. And you can see this really clearly in John 21, just before Jesus goes up into heaven after the resurrection, and he's talking to, to Peter. And he tells Peter how he's going to die. And it, he's going to go somewhere involuntarily. He's not going to like it. And Peter, it says in verse 20 and 22, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. Peter, therefore, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And that's us. How come he's got a better house? How come he's got a better job? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. Eyes are in your own paper. He's got a different plan. If if I wanted you, look, who would you rather be? Joseph and Daniel or Jeremiah and Paul? Two of the guys who are rich, ran countries. God makes that pick. It, 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 it's insignificant, your position in this life. It's only significant in the next. Psalm 75 promises this in 6 and 7. For not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation. But God is the judge. He puts down one and he exalts another. Now, do you believe that when you don't get the raise and the next guy does? When you don't get the sale and the next guy does? Do you really believe that? That God made that decision for your best interest? That's hard. You better think about that or your emotions are going to go nuts and you want to, t- want to tear the place apart. So, you, and uh, another reference on not comparing to others is Second Corinthians ten twelve. Don't compare yourself with it. I'm not going to read it now. Just understand this. It's Luke sixteen fifteen. Jesus says, whatever is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. In other words, the world is George Costanza. Everything it thinks of is wrong. Probably. Not always, but generally. If they, if they careen accidentally near the truth, it's, a, it's an accident usually. Just have that in your head. And so always be leery about it. Uh, remember, the, the world is controlled, the culture is controlled by Satan. It, it, it's not meant to be positive. God wants us to swim against the stream. That's his plan. So we're going to do that. And worldly Christianity, I mean, worldly thinking is distorted even the church. I'm not going to, um, with health, wealth doctrines that come out of promises made to Israel that aren't applicable to us uh, and uh What's happened is, and most churches embrace a business model so they can grow and attract people and they cater the message. Uh, that's a topic for another day. But understand this, we, want, we all want prosperity. And I have a couple of great quotes. C.S. Lewis said, prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he's finding his place in it, but really it's finding its, its place in him. It's dangerous. I love what Thomas Carlyle said. For every 100 men who can withstand adversity, only one can withstand prosperity. And yet all of us 
are pursuing prosperity. And we actually, our poverty line is like 10 times higher than the average world median income. Read the statistics. We, don't, we, we live in a, a place that's surreal to the rest of the world in its wealth and what we have. Our, our, our trailers with the chairs and the TVs and the air conditioning and the cooking are more comfortable and pleasant than what King Solomon had. I mean, they didn't invent comfortable chairs until about 100 years ago. Beds don't get me started. And we're now this posturepedics. We take this for granted. It's numbed us to the reality of how blessed we are, and we're still discontent. Now, and so, by the way, one of the things the world will tell you is that if you really want to serve God, you've got to have a bunch of money in the bank. Wait till you're successful. You don't have the time to do that now. And yet when God tells you to make disciples, he's, he doesn't say, till you have enough money. He says, right now, as you go, go therefore and make disciples. As you go, as you go to work, as you live your life, as you're with your family, as you're at the ball field, as you're playing uh, city league flag football or soccer or, or base, uh, baseball, softball, all that stuff, you, you, you got to, in those environments, right now, take the opportunities to minister. I have a lot, I do, I like to do triathlons. I've, set, I've had the opportunity to get out with guys and, and lead 10, 15 people to Christ that were in that area. It was a field where I had something in common. I could leverage it for Jesus. You can do the same thing. And every year at work, you have a lot in common with guys. And they something bad happens to them and they go totally bonk. And you're not bothered. They want to know, tell me what the heck, you're different than me. You got to tell, and you can tell them. So uh, we don't want to pursue uh, significance or just obey God now because you don't know you even have tomorrow. Uh, You can't wait. And don't think about being significant. Uh, I'll suggest to you there's only one significant person in the universe, and that's Jesus Christ. And he's got a monopoly. monopoly. And our job is to make him look better, not to try to get better. We're supposed to decrease and he increase, and we kind of want to look pretty good too. Make worry about how he looks. I'll stop for a second and um, see if I have any questions. Looks like an Audubon painting, a typical audience. Good. You see, you guys, you don't know who Audubon is, probably. He painted dead animals. That's y'all are like. He's <laughs> <laughs> from Louisiana. He should be famous. Uh, let's talk about. Uh, compartmentalizing for a second. Um, a lot of Christian businessmen think that because in their mind business is not a spiritual activity, they can't bring God into it. It's just the Bible's not written for American business in the 21st century. It's just it's not relevant. They, everybody can raise you know sheep and do fine, but it's tough now. It's much harder. And so we tend to take our lives and we, and, and, and most Christians is when they start growing up, they're, they're Christians here, but how they, what they, how they act when they play sports. And boy, you know, um, nothing like a fight on a, on a flag football field. I mean, really, it's crazy. Uh, and I like to do all that kind of stuff, but um, it's hard. You got to bring it there. What about when you go hunting with the guys on a hunting trip? 
or to play golf. How do you act there? You the same as you are at home? You the same as you are at church? Or when you're in your Bible study? What do you do when you're alone? What do you look at? All of us have stuff we do. We don't want anybody else to know. We don't want the, we don't want the streams to cross. I don't want those guys to see me at church. They'll think I'm a hypocrite. They'll know I'm a hypocrite. They'll find out I'm a hypocrite. Whenever you act differently with different groups, by the way, Satan owns you. He can extort all kinds of stuff. He's blackmailing you. If you go and step out and share Christ, I'm going to let him find out what you're doing over here. If you volunteer to teach this Bible study or introduce to the retreat, I'm going to let him find out what you've been watching on the Internet. Or that gal you've been meeting with for lunch. Or whatever it is. Or how you cheat on your taxes. And you go, I can't take that risk. Uh, so you back off. And you don't, you don't move forward. You've got, you've got to live, be the same person everywhere you are. Our lives are an integrated whole. Jesus says in Matt, Luke 16, 10, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. He who is unrighteous, unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous in much. Your character is you everywhere you go, even if you don't show it in the other places. You are you everywhere you go. And if you do it in secret, that's more who you are than whatever you're doing anywhere else. Make your life simpler. Start to clean it up. Tell your friends you came to Jesus. Even if you came to Jesus 10 years ago, tell them you came to Jesus, you can't do that anymore. Or you're not doing that anymore. Whatever you need to do to straighten that out. Don't think compartmentalization works. The Bible says it's impossible uh, and, it's, and um, it's a lie. It will only hold you back spiritually. In fact, if you continue it, you ought to question whether you even know Jesus. Because either he is Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. C.S. Lewis says what it, Christianity is a belief, which if it's not true is of no relevance. But if it is true... Nothing could be more important. It has to infect everywhere you are. Well, that's a process. Get after it. Start cleaning it up. On the contrary, work is not only a spiritual activity, it's your platform. We're not going to get into it, but the plan in this age is for laymen, yes. What section and or Bible verses helped you apply the word and integrate it into your workplace perception? <laughs> Actually, I could. There's a lot. It's not one verse. It's hundreds of verses about attitude. And that's why you've got to look at it. You, you don't, there's not one verse that's going to make you a good Christian at work. You know, it's like respecting your employees paying people on time. There's all these scattered verses all over the scripture. They all apply at work. Look not after your own interests, but also the interests of others. So you can't take advantage of anybody. Do unto others you have, do unto you the golden rule. You got That applies at work. If you make a commitment, God hates breaking commitments. Jesus said, let your yes be yes or your no be no. But if you say it, do it. And I'm going to hold you accountable. And there's verses where God makes it so plain. There's an example in, with Israel where all of a sudden there's a plague going on and D David says, we did something. And God says, well, Saul broke the covenant with the Gideonites. The Gibeonites. 
What was the covenant? The Gibeonites had defrauded Israel. They pretended to be from a far nation. Israel made a treaty with them against God's command. And they held that treaty for 400 years till Saul shows around. We're going to finally deal with those guys. And he slaughters them. God says a deal's a deal. People say, I've heard guys, that contract's not enforceable. I say, what that got to do with anything? Did you know what it meant? Did you sign it? Then to follow it. By the way, I've never, we've never sued anybody. I've never sued anybody in my business. Not that I couldn't, not that I didn't want to. I mean, I practiced law for a while. I'd love to a lot of times. Even this arbitration, they filed it. I might have filed it for that one, but I never have had to. Guys, you got them. If you tell somebody you're going to do something, even you underpriced it, suck it up. There's an example of one. You know, so um, anyhow, there's too many. That's the thing. It's a process you better enter into. And when you read your Bible, think, how does this apply at home? How does this apply at work? How does it apply in the sports field? I mean, competitive. we're in a competitive arena, but we don't need to have a competitive spirit where I got to beat this guy. I just worry about me. My daughter who swam in college, I used to, all I asked her after she did the meets is she had state records and things. Did you have fun? And did you swim hard? Because you never know if standing up in the blocks next to you is a future Olympian. You can't worry about that. That doesn't mean you don't like winning. That's natural. But you do it as unto the Lord. There's a difference between trying hard and winning. Because if you try hard, God says the reward is in the bank. Whatever happens on what what you were doing. You have to believe that. So, I never, ever leverage business to get, I mean, leverage Jesus to get business. Do business with me because I'm a Christian. Don't do that. Don't leverage Jesus to get business. But you know what you can do? Leverage business to get to Jesus. Leverage everything to get Jesus out. But those things are, you have to read, and a lot of them are principles that you better think how you're going to apply those principles. Being fair. I have arguments with employees to pay them fairly. And so they say, my wages aren't high enough. And I say to them, we base our salaries we have an independent person and we do the job description and say, what's that worth in the marketplace? And we have a goal to be just a little above the average marketplace for all the New Orleans, even though we're across Lake Pond. And we have that philosophy. And I said, so as best we could research it independently, you're getting paid fairly. We have scales and we have all this kind of mechanism. But he said, but it's not fair. And then I have to say, I have to decide what fair is. But you know what? And I say this all the time. I've got to answer to God for it. I hope I'm guessing right. So, because some of those things are no answer, but I've got to be fair. And so if they brace something and I think maybe we haven't taken it into account, I'll go back and look at it. By the way, if you, if you raise, if you, you can, that may mean giving somebody a raise and also giving them a pay cut. You know, but, but those are things God's going to, there's, that's a process and you need to have convictions and principles, but you also need to understand how you decide it. Like loving your wife, what does that look like? I can't help you. But you can't abdicate. I say, I can't. if I turn it over, you can run the company, but I'm running it, so I, I'm going to be accountable, but I've got to make the decision. Uh, by the way, 
if you're going to be a man of God in business, you got to have courage. You got to have courage because sometimes it's going to cost you a lot of money. Could cost you business relationships. Could cost you employees. Could cost you all kinds of things. And it takes courage to actually follow your principles when it gets tough. When somebody's asking you to do something to help them and you know it's the wrong thing to do. And you have to tell them no. You have to have that courage. Real men have that courage. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, act like men. Nobody knows what that means anymore, but they knew then. Take responsibility. Do the right thing. Man up. Own it. I think one of the problems we have today is nobody wants to take any responsibility. Uh, But you've got to. It's going to take that courage. And by the way, in Revelations 9, I think that's I've got it written down further somewhere else, which we won't get to. It says, cowards go to hell. Not surprisingly, Winston Parker pointed that verse out to me. <laughs> Think about that. If you're going to stand up for God, especially they were putting people at, in the Roman arena. And guys, if we live long enough, they're going to be doing that to us here. You better saddle up. But it's not, that's a, we get overtime pay for that kind of stuff in heaven. They're doing us a favor. They think we're hurting us. They think they're winning and they're losing. Remember, victorious Christian life doesn't look like you're winning. You can't tell because all you can see is the temporal. You're winning all the time. Satan can't take anything of any value from us. And we don't give him. He can take all our stuff. Well, that's going to leave it here anyway. You got to think about that. I tell guys, I sincerely do this. Every, not, every, not every day because I'd be too depressing. I'll be shaving and I'll say... I'll look at it and I'll say, would you like fries with that? Because I could be doing that in two weeks. They wouldn't even hire Joe for that job. Get over it. Yes, Lord, everything I have is yours. You've taken away. I can live in a tent. If you don't want to give me a tent, I'll live outside. Think, review those things. It may, this, this arbitration could cost us a huge amount of money to affect all it. But you know something? If God takes that away, it's his anyway. But you better process that in your head ahead of time, or when it comes, you're going to start shaking, you're going to start quaking, and you're not going to do what you ought to do. You've got to think. It, it, he could ask you. for. Jesus could say, sell everything. The apostles made it clear he hasn't asked all of us to do that, but he could ask you or I. So, now let's let's, maybe we'll just... We might not get it past this, but this is an important one. I want to talk a little bit about integrity. I mean, it is um, talked about a lot, and, you, if, and it's going to be really important. And um, if you're going to pull this off, uh, and, and Psalm 15, 2 says that people who really live with God, who want to live with God, they walk with integrity. And they work righteousness and speak the truth from their heart. And um, most Christian men believe you operate with full integrity, you go bankrupt. And um, that's just not true. But you might go bankrupt. That's the risk you take. It's like when you're playing a game, if you want to call the other guy, what do you have to do? You got to put your money up. Well, you got to put your money up. Um, 
God says, as I've already covered, he's got the odds stacked. You're going to get what he wants you to have no matter what. It may not be what you want, but you'll get what he wants you, what he wants you to have. So we can't live in those two worlds that people do. And what we need, I'm going to suggest to you, I'm going to talk about what it is, but we need men of integrity, Christians of integrity, who won't dissolve into the stream of the culture. I mean, our problem is we want to act better than they do, but just a little bit better. And so as they get worse, we kind of slide down with them, always a little higher, our performance a little better. You know, we hope our divorce rate's just a little higher than theirs. God's word never does this. What is it? It's this. It's hard and fast. There's no such thing as a cultural command. So you gotta, you gotta, you gotta fix it and don't gauge how you're doing by looking at other men. Actually, it's interesting. In Job, God notes that he's the best guy I have on earth. That's a low bar. That's a low bar compared to Jesus. The reason Paul felt so bad is the closer you get to Jesus, the more clearly you see yourself in contrast. And it's a little bit discouraging. You're going to have to get over that. George Washington once said, few men have the virtue to withstand the highest bidder. And so it just doesn't take much to look good in the world. Actually, at this little hearing, one of my people said, Hank, our boss, Hank Milberger, is a good man. And I'm sitting there thinking, compared to what? These guys? <laughs> they were. <laughs> That's a low bar. That's not our bar. Um, well, but anyhow, but if integrity is important, what is it? And I'm going to suggest to you, like 1 Corinthians 13 describing love, it helps to just to look at what it isn't in contrast, and then we'll talk about what it is. So it's not accuracy. Integrity is not just accuracy. That's what you get from Washington bureaucrats. We had a frank and honest discussion. Translation, we didn't spit on each other. It's accurate, but it's not very helpful. It's not managing the truth. By the way, I got a PhD in that. I'm really, if you need help, I'm, I'm really good at it. I can make myself look good no matter what I did. Managing the truth. So we're all spin doctors. We shade here. We leave a little something out. I was late because so-and-so walked into my office. Well, they were in my office for five minutes. I'm two hours late. Come on. You got to work on that. I have to work on that. Um, it's not doing what is legal. That, too, is a really low bar. That, too, is a really low bar. Legality does not equal morality. If you say something to, something to somebody, it's just as binding as if you wrote it down. In God's eyes, and he'll call you to account for that, too. So if you sign a contract, if you make a commitment to employ, I did some deals, and I didn't think I communicated that, but the employer was absolutely convinced I had. So I did it because they didn't want to think I welched. If I was unclear, it's my fault. Those things, so it's not, it's not just doing what's legal. It's not pragmatism. Don't do anything that would, wouldn't look good on the front page. That's crazy. crazy. It's not, by the way, just honesty. Integrity is way broader than honesty. Spencer Johnson once said, um, integrity is telling myself the truth and honesty is telling the truth to other people. It's way deeper. It's sadly... As a, as a uh, famous uh, uh, advertising pioneer, 
uh, William Birnbeck said, honesty sells. Unfortunately, guys, so does sex. But it's not honesty sold as a, as a marketing idea. Now, truthfully, it's way broader than that. But you need to be honest. It's important to tell the truth. It's not putting off ministry until later or taking a command of God and not applying it this time because you might, you, you know, you, you, may, you may not survive financially. It's not delayed obedience, which is another way of saying disobedience. And I'm an expert at that one too. It's not mixing God's instructions with worldly approaches. I just put a little God in there like we put Tabasco in our gumbo. Make the whole thing better. No, he's like the only ingredient. He's got to be like the only. You don't mix him up with the other stuff. You take him, he's primacy, and you only do the other stuff that doesn't conflict with what he said. It's not having a good reputation. Lots of crooks have good reputations. Jesus was of no reputation, the Bible says. Bigger than that. It's not having goals, really lofty goals, when your means are questionable. Biblically, the means never justify the end. I mean, the, ju- the end never justifies the means. God's work has to be done God's way. He doesn't need you to fudge to accomplish it. You don't need to cheat on that deal so you can meet that charitable contribution commitment. I'll give it to you in charity, that kind of garbage. Um, it's not, surely, as we already mentioned, it's not following God in most areas, but holding out a couple more. I'll just every now and then look at this on the side or... Or go see that, or whatever it might be. Uh, it's, it, it just doesn't. Uh, you've got to be consistent. And interestingly, after the big downturn in the early 2000s, they wrote some articles. One of them was in USA Today. It was striking, and they don't write this kind of thing often. But it was an article entitled "Business Scandals Prompt a Look into Personal Lives," and this is what it noted: a common thread running through some of the recent scandal-prone companies. Many top executives accused of betraying the trust of the shareholders also betrayed the trust of their wives. Many firms are recognized there might be a lesson here. In the quest for more ethical leaders, recruiters are increasingly looking to executives' personal lives for evidence of wrongdoing and other behavior that raises questions about their integrity. Even lost person gets some, gets some of that. They understand that. It matters. It's not doing things that you feel you're justified in doing. Rationalization for me is the key to happiness. The, don't if you got to be careful. Justifications are are just lies that you tell yourself. Rationalizations. Be be wary because we have a highly developed sense of that. Um, one mob boss said, "I love this on this justification." He says, "I never did anything ruthless." He says, "Well, I would kill people, but that was our life. That's how far. That's how good you can get at justification." That's how good you can get if you practice it. Everyone does it. The times have changed. They deserve it. No one will get hurt. God wants me happy. All justifications. It's not situational ethics. We won't even, I don't even need to talk about it. Ethics are ethics. They don't bend. They're across the line. It's not measuring right from wrong by perceived consequences. If nobody gets hurt, it's okay. God says, who got hurt when Adam ate that piece of fruit. We did. He didn't, he couldn't, you, you don't know enough to count the consequences. It changed the universe. Created the second law of thermodynamics where everything deteriorates. You can't count the cost. You can't perceive the consequences. Ever. 
No one got hurt. The kids will be happier. You know, he, you know, anyhow, uh, we, we just need to watch out for that. It's not having a 1,000 batting average either. Integrity doesn't mean you live perfectly. We're people trying to get better all the time. My batting average may be around 250, but I started at 90. And I'm working on it. And I'm working on it. Hypocrisy is not being sinless. It's being transparent and not to pretend that you're better than you are. So what is it? In the Old Testament, the word for integrity was the word tom, and it meant completeness, uh, usually innocence, meaning without any, any imperfection, no, in our terms, there'd be no evil. A full integrity, perfect simplicity, upright. The root was the thuman stone, which the high priest wore at his breastplate, and that was a symbol of complete truth and perfection. So it's, it's solid. It, 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 there's no cra- cracks in it. In the New Testament, Mark and Matthew use a word that means true, as in not, con- um, not concealing, nothing hidden. What you see is what you get. Now, he's not different somewhere else. And the root of that word is, is, is nothing hidden. Titus, it means incorruptible, purity. It, it Literally, it's a combination of no rot. You're not in rot anywhere. That means there's no double-mindedness. You're wholehearted. Engineers know what that term means. What it, when they expect a bridge, they don't just look at it, do they? The outside. They get underneath it. They drill little holes. They do, now they can scan it. They're looking for hidden imperfections. Uh, for sure, integrity is the opposite of hypocrisy. But um, so what it is, is um, it's like if we, if our lives are a bridge, um, obedience to God's command would be the traffic going across the top of that bridge. And you ever go on a bridge that says nothing that weighs more than 2,000 pounds? Well, God says, you're you as a I've made you so that you're a bridge and you're capable of handling every one of my commands they can come right across It'll, you can carry them you can obey them unless you've done something to compromise the load limit what have you let into your life to weaken you what little habits are you doing that are chipping away remember sin's a cancer it's not a cut it doesn't stay here it's, it goes through the whole body it's like an infection uh, when you sin, you, you, you create and strengthen a sin nature and a desire for things that you shouldn't desire. And so uh, you want to be a man of integrity everywhere you go. And if you can do that in business, you better know God's word and you better know how to apply it. And uh, I will, uh, I think I'll finish on teachability because it's so important. And uh, what it, teachability is really critical. And if you want to know if you're teachable, I mean, what is teachability, by the way? When someone's teaching, you have to sit down and listen, right? And learn something. And if you're teachable, you listen and learn and you apply. Right? The problem is when it comes to, I don't like to hear bad things about me. Like I say, uh, you know, marriage is not self-esteem camp. 
Because your wife sees you when you're relaxed. You can't, you can hide someplace. It's hard to hide over years. Truthfully. So, that, but God often will use people who have no right, who are worse than you, to teach you something. And if you're teachable, you will put that aside and listen to them because there may be some truth in there. I mean, I love the story of Habakkuk. He's an Old Testament prophet. He's praying away. God, how Israel's in such sin. How can you let this go on? How can you put up with this? How, you, you, promised, you said in Deuteronomy you would deal with this. And, and he sits down and God answers him and he says, I'm sending the Babylonians. Don't worry, I'm going to clean their clocks. And Habakkuk stops and thinks about that and he says, the Babylonians, they're worse than us. You can't send the Babylonians. That ain't right. The Babylonians are worse sinners. Those are greedier. They're crueler. They worship all these. God says, don't worry. I'll take care of them too. God will take care of the other person. If, you, if someone comes to tell you something about yourself and you make them pay a price, or you in your mind say they don't have the right to say that, you don't listen to them, you're not teachable, guys. That's how you find out. When you, and, and nobody, nobody likes to hear they failed. I hate it. We, don't, we hate accountability. But God advises us, better to find out about it now. Better give a good, yourself a good hard look and see where, who you really are now and it'll go easier when you come to me. Examine yourself. Repent. One of the keys to walk with Jesus is repentance, guys. Think about it. In the Old Testament, if you read Deuteronomy, it says this. You're going to disobey me, God says. And when you do, I'm going to send prophets. And if you don't listen to those prophets, I'm going to clean your clock. Right? Over and over again, that's what he says. But the interesting, you notice, the presupposition is they're going to screw up. The key is when they're confronted, will they turn? Repentance is the key. Now, it's interesting, too, in the New Testament, Paul talks about a guy who's going to church, sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmom. He's sleeping with her, and everybody knows it. And all that guy, and they said, go talk to him, and if he doesn't repent, kick him out, right? So they weren't going to kick a guy out who's sleeping with his stepmom as long as he repents. He says, you know why? Because you're all the same. The key is, are you teachable? Are you getting better? If you stop getting better, God can't. There's nothing he can do for you. There's nothing he can do for you. So, guys, get out there and let's make Jesus look a little better by the way we behave so that after every interaction, after every deal you do, after everything you do at work, you could turn around and share Christ with that guy. If you couldn't, you're screwing up.